0: Welcome back to the University of Minnesota Extension's Nutrient Management Podcast. I'm your host, Jack Wilcox, Communications Generalist here at U of M Extension. Today, we're going to talk about cover crop challenges and solutions. We have four panelists here with us today. Can you each give us a quick introduction?
1: Hi, I'm Anna Cates. I'm the state soil health specialist. I work out of St. Paul for University of Minnesota Extension.
2: Hi, I'm Jeff Vetch. I'm a researcher, uh, soil fertility work out of the Southern Research and Outreach Center in Waseca.
3: I'm Jared House. I'm the Administrative Manager for the Grant Swim and Water Conservation District, uh, offices
4: out of Elbow Lake, Minnesota. And I'm Ryan Vito, the Minnesota NRCS State Agronomist based in St. Paul.
0: Thank you. Let's jump right in. What were the cover crop issues for 2022 and 2023?
2: Well, my territory is, is primarily South Central, Southeast Minnesota. And the challenges that we saw in South Central was primarily in the fall of 2022, where we had really dry conditions most of September and October, which kind of uh, reduced germination and really hindered growth. Even though we had a nice long mild fall, we had some some research studies that just did not have a great establishment. And where it did did germinate, it kind of got patchy or fall growth, and that carried over into the springtime in southeast Minnesota. They had good conditions in the fall for of twenty twenty two for establishment. But the second half of May through all of June was extraordinarily dry in those areas, which didn't hinder ter- crop cover crop or crops that were planted into cover crops. I don't think very much for ones that were terminated in April. but anything that was terminated in May or planted maybe like soybeans planted green, those were ones that kind of struggled as they had used a fair amount of moisture, uh, topsoil moisture and then they just did not get that rainfall to get things established. The only other thing I observed and that was from the fall, of 2023 was what looked like some herbicide carryover and some stunted plants uh, growing in September and early October. And that might've been drew, due to the drought of the summer of 2023 and the slow breakdown of some pre-emerge herbicides. And, and we could see that in most of our grass species in our cover crops, which is interesting because the grasses are typically pretty tolerant of some of those you know typical pre-emerge herbicide
4: products
1: tolerant to a point, right? Anybody else see that?
4: To tie tie into that a little bit, um, I kind of saw a situation where cover crops took the blame for some some soybean damage in the spring, right? And so that dry period uh, going from 2022 into 2023, uh, maybe there was some clopyrrolid sprayed out there, um, something didn't break down as quickly as it normally would, and all of a sudden, they're starting to see some damage in their soybeans. So maybe that's, you know, that extra moisture use from the, maybe a rye crop, uh, cover crop, but maybe also just the drought itself, right?
3: Um, I know in West Central Minnesota, uh, I've gotten a few producers who's contacted our office um, that we have cover crop contracts with, and they mentioned that they actually just delayed planting in anticipation of uh, the herbicides not breaking down, or with uh, more herbicide resistance, they they would make some more applications later in the year that they were worried would affect the cover crop. So we didn't get them in as early as we could have, and we actually missed some rains because of that. But they are actively, have been actively managing for the herbicide.
0: Based on the conditions right now and what we saw last spring, what do we think are some good management practices going forward?
1: I guess that uh, last year, you know, like Jeff said, we we still had some difficulty getting cover crops established in the fall, but we've had some nice growth conditions. So, we, you know, driving around, I drove up to Northwest Minnesota in the last week. I definitely have seen some cover crops on the landscape. I've seen some pictures of, you know, nice green cover crops out there. I know that some people maybe were more hesitant to plant this fall if they were worried about lack of moisture or just the waste of the seed, like Jeff described. You don't want to put seed out that isn't going to have good germination conditions Uh, so i think that for those people who are watching their fields green up with pleasure at this point it's just going to be a matter of walking that line and and making sure you don't let it get out of control Um, might be in a situation where we want to we have a lot of growth and we want to terminate before we have really good weather conditions for herbicide action that could be a concern this spring
3: I I did a little homework before this podcast, and I called some soil and water districts from Kitson County all the way down to Rock County, kind of in the western portion of the state. And what I've been hearing from staff is they're encouraging the producers to get their sprayers ready early and to watch that rye uh, or uh, whatever they have covered there and, and look at the soil moisture as well. And be prepared and don't wait for the co-op to go out and spray because if they can't make it for a week or so, you might be a little too late. And um, chances are uh, you may have some impact, especially if we don't get the moisture.
2: Anna, what we did in our research study last fall was we kind of adapted to what we saw in the fall of 2022 by just holding off our seeding for a week or 10 days after silage harvest in our research study. Um, We were fortunate enough we got about two-tenths of an inch of rain. It was just enough to kind of moisten that top two, three inches that we drilled. And then we were really fortunate we got another two-tenths just a couple days later. And that was just the perfect amount, even though subsoil moisture was extraordinarily dry. It was just the perfect amount of surface soil moisture to get that cover crop to germinate and establish really nicely. So I think that... You know, if if you've come across those really dry falls, maybe you just hold off on seeding a little bit until you get some moisture, so that you don't just leave those seeds lay out there and and they they just won't germinate.
1: Yeah, I've heard of some people, you know, creating mixes that are less heavy on the grasses, right? So using some species that have less biomass in them are going to take up less water um, or going to winter kill, that kind of thing. Just looking for a little less cover crop is a little less cover crop to manage. Um, That being said, some of our research data, we have a study on planting green. And last year, um, looking at our 2023 soybeans planted after cover crops, The places where we grew the most cover crop in the Granite Falls area, we didn't see a soybean yield hit regardless of termination. We grew up to 2,000 pounds an acre of rye biomass, whereas in some other locations where we're at less than 100 pounds an acre of rye biomass, we saw a big yield hit with late termination. So. The biomass alone isn't explaining the difficulty of growing soybeans after rye in a drought situation, right? There could be some issues with seedling establishment and that kind of thing that are irrespective of the the total rye biomass, it seems like.
0: Ryan, you adjusted rye seeding rate requirements in the fall of 24 um, when drilled. Talk us through your decision-making process on that.
4: Yeah, as has been mentioned here, cover crops are a kind of multifunctional Swiss army knife, right? Like, there's a lot of different ways that we can go about doing things, and we want to make sure that we're being responsive not only to producer feedback, but also some of the work coming out of the university showing that you can still see some benefits at some lower rates. And we're starting to think through there's ways to have these positive impacts on our resource concerns at these lower rates, especially when you have maybe a little bit earlier planting date and some more time to get that winter cover growing. So what we ended up doing is adjusting our cereal rye seeding rates for a single species cover crop. And you know the government, we don't always change things quickly, but you know we're able to change small things here and there. And so we've kind of focused in on cereal rye um, as it's typically one of the easier cover crops to do. You know, cereal rye can handle a lot of different conditions, right? And so you might be seeing that on more acres as well. Um, But before the change, um, our recommended rate, our minimum rate, was 55 pounds drilled or 83 pounds per acre broadcast. So that could obviously it's going to be really difficult to fly on 83 pounds, but uh, basically. incorporated rate was 83 pounds per acre. That's very high, right? And so we were able to adjust that down. Um, so if planting was before October 1st, whether it was broadcast, drilled, however it was put out there, 40 pounds. And so the goal there was to get that seed out there early, get established, and have some good growth in the fall. Uh, after the October 1st date, we had we went from 55 pounds to we lowered it to 50, and that 83 pounds down to 75. And so the goal there is we definitely know that there's benefits from these rates some might even say that they're still high, right? But uh, we're looking at things, we're trying to be responsive. Really, the goal is to kind of make adjustments. Uh, We still need to make more adjustments down the road. Obviously, these rates, they made sense, right? But as we started to do more research on cover crops and more information comes out, I think we need to make sure that we're making adjustments. So, you know, nothing against the rates as they were, but I think that we're starting to look at. Yeah, we have enough data where we can make some adjustments to a few of these things. Our multi species mix, we didn't feel comfortable changing that because, you know, sometimes, you know, when you're talking 50% of the mix and then you have things in there that winter kill, we need to figure out what is that rate that, uh, what is that percentage that is enough to have some good growth, especially when it comes to things like nitrates. But when we're really focusing in on our resource concerns like erosion, at those much lower rates, you know, you can see a huge benefit from a, a very low rate. So, and with the drought, you know, that really kind of expedited things for trying to reduce this because we want to make sure that people weren't throwing out a whole bunch of seed out there and then nothing germinates right you know 40 pounds per acre the amount of growth you get if nothing germinates is the same as if you put out 83 pounds right? so <laughs> at the end of the day you want to make sure that we have something out there but also really try to make it more approachable so that more producers are trying this and we can get some more conservation out there on the landscape.
3: Ryan I would 100% agree with your last statement there um, we've had a few producers that um, weren't comfortable with putting out that much, uh, that high of a rate, especially with not incorporating. And I think that'll help us reach some producers that are trying some innovative things um, and would like some assistance. Take, for example, uh, broadcasting cereal rye before, pre-lift on sugar beets. When I mentioned that you should be using 80 pounds, a lot of them get scared away and they will end up doing, some of them will do it on their own, which is great. And I I always encourage that, but they've been seeing some success with those lower, lower seeding rates.
4: And I want to make sure that the producer can use their discretion to go higher, right? I mean, these are our minimum rates. These are the minimum amounts that we need to see some kind of benefit. But let's say you're trying to graze it, probably going to want to put 90 pounds out there, right? So uh, we need to make sure that this makes sense and we have a minimum that makes sense for what our resource concern is.
1: That kind of leads into some of the research we wanted to talk about, Jack, which is um, something that the Minnesota NRCS has funded me to work on, is looking specifically at the outcomes of different cover crop applications. So we'll probably be designing a set of treatments with different cover crop seeding rates, that we expect to provide different amounts of biomass. And then we can look at how much erosion we're seeing in those plots, both from water and from wind. And we can look at how much nitrogen is taken up by those cover crops. You know, We touched on this a little bit, but there's really different concerns in different parts of the state. Obviously in Southeast Minnesota, taking nitrate out of the soil is of primary importance. In Western Minnesota, slowing down wind erosion tends to be people's first concern when they're planting cover crop. And you probably need a pretty different cover crop to address those two different concerns. So we hope to put some numbers on kind of the amount of biomass that might be a target to achieve meaningful reductions in both of those important outcomes. And we'll, we'll be putting field plots in in the fall of 2024 to get at some of that.
4: And obviously, change uh, can sometimes be slow, but we are trying to use uh, expertise from people uh, with experience in this type of thing to to make some other adjustments to our guidance uh, by next fall so that we can possibly see some differences. But we got to make sure everything is backed by that great university research.
1: Jeff, do you want to tell us a little bit about your university research?
2: Yeah, sure, Anna. Uh, so the project that I'm currently working on is in its third year. And it's looking at different species following corn silage. And the, we're planning a winter terminated uh, mix of oat, forage peas, and radish. And then the other cover crop species, of course, is cereal rye, which we terminated in the spring prior to planting the next year's corn crop. The first uh, year of this site was 2022. Um, we saw a pretty decent cover crop growth and a nice uh, reduction in nitrate concentration in our, in our tile drainage water. From that cereal rye, marginal effects to the winter annuals or winter terminated annuals, which we kind of expected. The 2023 growing season, uh, we just did not get very good establishment of our cover crops in the dry 2022 fall. Didn't really see much for effects, which was understandable. And then last fall, we got a very good establishment of both our cereal rye and our uh, oat blend. And the cereal rye looks great right now. And it'll be interesting to see with this very mild winter, how much growth we put on here in, in March and possibly early April compared to our more traditional winters that we've experienced the last two years. And of course, the winter or spring of 2023 was really cold and did not was not ideal for growth in April. So be, it'll be a good contrast to what we've seen in the past.
1: Are your tile lines running out?
2: Uh, No, tile lines are not running, but we are near, I think, very near field moist capacity. We saw significant rainfall in late October, and then um, soils were not frozen around Christmas time, and we had uh, 1.2 inches of rain during that period, which is totally unheard of, that that would uh, come as rain and infiltrate into the soil. Since then, we've just had little dabs of moisture here and there, not a lot, so it's still relatively dry, but... Field conditions are pretty good, and and another inch or two rain here in late February, March would probably get our tiles running, and that'll that'll be uh, some interesting time to start looking at that early data.
1: Yeah, I've heard of tiles starting to run in a few different spots. Uh, Not everywhere, not a ton, but the profile is getting filled up with these winter rains that we've been seeing. I feel like the other research project we should talk about is our Planting Green study, um, which is in its third year. Is that right, Jared?
3: Yeah, I believe. I believe so. I think the first application, at least in Barrett, or seeding of the cereal rye was in fall of 2021. I yeah, that right. sounds right. Yeah. That
1: sounds right. So this is looking at different termination timings of cereal rye, and I talked a little bit about that data, but we're really just trying to hone in on whether you can do green planted soybeans without seeing an agronomic hit and looking a little bit at some soil health responses too. And it's been working with a lot of great farmer cooperators. Jared has helped us recruit one in his area and we've got some all the way up in Northwest Minnesota too.
3: It's been a great study to be a part of, and it's it's helped us locally promote more cereal rye and come up with some precautions for for producers who are a little bit nervous uh, about letting it, letting the rye grow in the spring. But I think like you mentioned earlier, one of the biggest concerns we have here is wind blowing in the spring and ending up with a lot of snert. Um, I think we've been ta- joking around in our office that we got to get shirts made up that say don't flirt with snert um, <laughs> because be a good one. I have quite a few examples of um, dry from Morris, Minnesota up to Elbow Lake every day and seeing and comparing different fields and sturt in the ditches. And so there are more and more producers coming in wanting to prevent that, uh, but also having a concern whether the uh, grain corn or soybeans following that rye. And so this is uh, definitely going to be information that's going to be useful for our producers.
1: Right now we're just looking at the soybeans after cereal rye and that planting green process, so we're not able to get into any of the questions that I've seen really cool data on from Iowa and other states about seedling disease in in corn after rye, um, so we're not looking at that yet, but we're we're getting a start at least on the agronomics.
3: Yeah, good clarification, yes. <laughs>
4: Well, and this year it hasn't even been snurt, right? It's just been dirt. This very, very open winter, you know, whether it's a cover crop, a winter annual, like, you know, winter camelina, winter wheat, or even a perennial, like alfalfa or kernza. I feel like it's pretty intuitive that there's a benefit from that winter cover, right? It's just really unfortunate to see the amount of blowing going on this year.
3: Anna or anyone else, are you familiar with any research going on in uh, sugar beets and in cover crops? Because, uh, like I mentioned, um, we've got a lot of wind blowing in the spring, and that's one of our biggest concerns. And um, I mean, whether that research is on success rates or just herbicide applications, especially with higher uh, water hemp and resistance, and concerns with getting cover crops established after uh, sugar beet lift.
1: Yeah, I am in the middle of working on some stuff with that funded by the LCCMR, and we're running a few events around the state with farmers talking about our results and just talking about the nuts and bolts of the agronomic systems. As you say, sugar beets are just such a challenge because of the long growing season and the destructive harvest. I've heard mixed results, uh, you know, some growers are trying to seed a cover crop sort of around the defoliation phase of cover crops. And We did some experiments with aerial seeding cover crops in Polk County at that time so that means you're flying the cover crop on the defoliator and the lifter go through and that action of harvest kind of incorporates the seeds like any broadcast pass this is totally dependent on moisture so just a few days apart, we've got two growers just you know 10 miles apart who had really different outcomes based on their soil moisture. And we'll have more data on that coming out. The other thing we're doing in sugar beets is that we have some pre-pile acres. So those early harvested sugar beet acres that got a cover crop. And we're looking at wind erosion over the course of the winter. And we haven't crunched all the numbers yet, but my student who's been out there actually collecting the sediment in the boxes all winter, he's He's seen some visual differences. So I I think we might be able to detect what we all kind of see in the ditches in our in our data from these uh, sediment collectors.
2: Anna, I think you might be familiar with Lindsay Pease's work out of Crookston too. She's looking at uh, uh, seeding cover crops. During the um, yes. sugar beet year, and she reported on some of that at the la- at the nutrient management conference, just, which just occurred last week. So, I think it's in its very early stages. Like this was twenty twenty three, might have been the first year.
1: Yeah, so that's part of the same LCCMR project that Lindsay and I are both on, and and she added a component of trying to estimate the nutrient mineralization from the cover crops that are interseeded with growing beets. Uh, So from the nutrient supply to beets perspective, it looked like there probably some interesting stuff going on with nitrogen dynamics again in the first year. but in terms of the soil benefits, we haven't been able to see anything that survives the harvest action um, after that. If we intercede something in beets, we haven't seen anything survive the harvest. But I have heard growers say that they have occasionally seen it. And then as you see growers fine-tune their strip-till system, especially in um, where they're working after wheat stubble, I saw one grower talk about a system where he was able to essentially use his wheat stubble for wind erosion protection for two years afterward, first by strip tilling in his sugar beets and then planting edible beans in those same rows. And so he had a cover crop in the system, but he was also getting that wind erosion protection from just keeping his stubble intact via a strip till system.
4: I like how often you use the word system there, right? So uh,
1: (laughs) yeah, you
4: can't just plug cover crops in and hope that it's going to change things. It's got to be part of that system and be making sense, right?
1: That's right. That's right. And uh, the tillage changes, the fertility changes that come with using cover crops are a topic for probably a whole other podcast, Jack. (laughs)
0: For someone who's brand new to cover crops uh, and maybe have some concerns that were exacerbated by this last uh, cycle, what should they be aware of? Are there any pieces of advice you would want to uh, tell them?
1: Well, this part is, it's a mental issue as much as it is an agronomic issue, right? There's a real tension to starting something new and watching it evolve, especially as you're approaching that first cash crop planting after cover crops and just being confident that you haven't sunk the whole ship. So what I really hear growers say is that they want someone to talk to during that period. And, you know, you could call Jared or whoever your local soil and water is, and he'll listen and he'll tell you to talk to somebody else who's been successful. Um, You could call any of us and we'll try to hook you up with someone in your area who's had a success. I, I, I would say that's a big part. Maybe the rest of you have some more practical pieces that you would bring up.
3: I just reiterate the the producer to producer, farmer to farmer networking. Um, I know that the farm maps application that Sinram has put together has been a very nice tool for sharing case studies of specific examples and contact information for producers. Uh, but more practical items are start small. I feel like I always say start with uh, your your cereal rye and. Incorporate drill in if you can. We try to use broadcasting as a last resort because we that is very hit or miss depending on when you get it down, when you get your rain afterwards. But we at least get some spotty results within the within a field if it's if it's drilled in. But start small, ask questions. Uh, If you see some something curious in a field nearby, talk to that producer. I'm. I'm more than confident saying that they're more likely going to share with you what their experiences are.
4: Right. When you're learning something new, there is the potential for failures, right? But that potential goes down a lot faster if you are listening to someone that already had those failures, right? So you can try to find ways to avoid things. You're not going to become an Olympic swimmer by not knowing how to swim and jumping into the deep end, right? So you know, maybe starting with the doggy paddle before you move up to the breaststroke, you know, try to find ways to try out the simpler uh, concepts before diving into planting green uh, multi-species mixes, that kind of stuff.
2: Yeah, I, I don't know that I have a whole lot to add. I would agree that start where the, the most sense and the easiest things and the most most likely to be successful Cover crops after canning crops, after corn silage, things like that, where you got more time to get a good establishment. I agree with uh, the broadcasting in standing crops. It can work, but there's times when it doesn't, and that's frustrating. Uh, I've heard a lot of growers tell me that they had just as much success blending their cereal rye in with their P&K fertilizer and just having a very light dose of tillage or vertical till to You know, just a little bit of incorporation and doing that after harvest, they get just as good establishment as putting it out there, you know, a month earlier in this as the crops are senescing. So I think those are good places to to start.
1: Yeah, you mentioned a couple of good easy buttons, Jeff, like the post silage, post canning crop, post wheat is another one. Um, and then maybe also you could think about areas that really need the help, right? Like we talked about those pre-pile acres and sugar beets, areas that are going to see a lot of traffic, headlands, that applies to your um canning crop fields too where you're seeing a lot of traffic and heavy trucks uh it's great to be able to get something growing out there so think about where it's easy and and where you might see the most meaningful benefit for your farm maybe it's sloping land maybe it's just the land next to the road that somebody's hassling you about um maybe it's the land in the back where nobody's gonna see it it just depends on your on your goals for the the cover crop system
4: and, and that's right it, right? You need to have a goal because if you don't have a goal with that cover crop, what is it going to do? It's not, right? So what's the saying? You know, failing to plan is planning to fail. And if you don't have a goal for that cover crop, how are you putting together your mix? What, what are those actual species supposed to do, right? We have a lot of different cover crops that have these really cool superpowers, right? So rye can help us uh, battle some weeds. Radish or turnip can help break up some compaction. So try to think through what do I want to do in these areas and how can this cover crop help me do that?
3: I would also just add that you can't always anticipate success or you can't anticipate success so just because it doesn't work one year doesn't mean it won't work the next year kind of have a multi-year plan of how you want to address it you can make changes whenever you need to active management is key but don't just plan on trying it for one year and then saying it doesn't work because we do know it works um we have people up like i said in kids county almost into canada that can make cover crops work down to rock homestead county It can work, but we just have to uh, be flexible and want to make it work.
1: I'll just advertise one other resource that we're putting together from Extension, which is a cover crop academy that'll run over the next year. And this is particularly for soil and water, NRCS, and CCA uh, types who advise farmers on cover crops. This will be a year-long chance to do a little hands-on research at our research and outreach centers in Waseca and Lamberton and Crookston. And we'll have a lot of access to some experts from Minnesota and beyond who will talk about some of the elements of the system that can be a little more tricky to master. So, we'll put information about registration for that with this podcast.
0: Are there any last words from the group?
1: Send us pictures. We love seeing how the cover crops are growing.
0: (laughs) That about does it for this episode of the Nutrient Management Podcast. We'd like to thank the Agricultural Fertilizer Research and Education Council, or AFREC, for supporting the podcast. Thanks for listening.